for the ones standing guard, for the eagle-eyed, for the knights in shining armor, and for all those who support them. We are Granger, your experienced safety partner, offering supplies and solutions for every industry, committed to helping keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com slash safety, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. My name is Bruce Reyes Chow, and this is BRC and Friends. Each episode, I chat with activists, artists, academics, and adventurers to discuss politics, faith, pop culture, technology, and as you will discover, pretty much everything else that pops into our heads. This is basically an excuse for me to hang out with friends and colleagues and riff about things that matter. Welcome to BRC and Friends. Welcome all back to BRC and Friends. I'm glad you all are here today. I'm very excited to uh, welcome Holly Tabor. Holly is uh, a PhD and an associate professor of medicine at, the, at Stanford University, just down the street where I live, and associate director for clinical ethics and education at the Stanford Center of Biomedical Ethics. That's a very long, that's like three... Uh, business cards, but I'm going to keep going. She's also the co-chair of the ethics committees for Stanford Hospital and Lucille Packard Children's Hospital. She's published wide range of topics in bioethics, uh, ethical issues, and genetics. And and now it's reading this over, and I'm like, I had to go genetics and genomic medicine. (laughs) Right? Yeah, where's that? I don't know, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just, there's stuff. Uh, She's also written and spoken about a lot of ethical issues. And inclusive of health practices for adults and children with dis- children with disabilities. So welcome, Holly. Thank you. Thanks for having so, me. So glad you could be here. Um, as I do with all my guests, I first just ask you, who is Holly? Tell us a little bit about yourself. What's important to know? How would you introduce yeah. yourself? Oh, so hard. You start with the hard questions, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. So I I was actually just talking to a student earlier today. I um, I kind of am this weird unicorn thing. I was telling um, her that um, if you told me in college uh, or even maybe graduate school that the job I do now existed, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, so I kind of fell into, like many people, I kind of fell into what I do through a, a combination of luck and, and random choices and, and non-random choices. But, um, but I do a lot of work. Um, one of the things I like about my job is I have a lot of variety. So um, I help run the clinical ethics consult services at the adult and children's hospital. And I think a lot about ethical issues in day-to-day life in a hospital and in a health system. And those are issues that I think about as an employee and as someone who works with a lot of healthcare providers and doctors and nurses, but I also think about it as a patient and as a family member and as a community member. And I get to work with all sorts of different kinds of people, including patients and families. And and I supervise the team that does that throughout our um, hospital. And so that's um, something I do that that's uh, really uh, meaningful, and important to me, and that I, I get a lot of personal um, satisfaction out of, I um, really enjoy. I also do some research, like you mentioned, I do research on ethical issues and genetics um, and uh, new new technologies that come up um, related to genetics research and treatments for genetic disease. And then I get to do some teaching. So I teach um, all, all the medical students at Stanford. Um, I teach them the ethics thread that they have to take. I teach graduate students about research ethics. This year, I'm teaching um, an undergraduate class, co-teaching undergraduate class about ethical issues related to brain death and organ donation in the U.S. and Japan, Mm. which is a really interesting course. So I get to do some teaching, get to meet a lot of really neat people, um, students and other other people through that. So so I get to do a lot of different things. And then I'm also... um, a parent. I have two boys um, who one's almost 19 
and about to graduate from high school and one is 15. Um, and uh, they both have um, learning disabilities. And so that's affected a lot of my, I've learned a lot from them and, and I've uh, become much more aware and educated about a lot of the historical and current challenges that people with disabilities um, face in our society. And so that's also a place where my personal life and my professional work kind of intersect. And so I've been doing some more work in my job hat on um, related to that as well as my mom hat on. Um, and uh, yeah, I've lived on the West Coast for about 26 years and I originally grew up on the East Coast and uh, um, uh, just really happy to get to be here with you along in my review and your work. And thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm glad you could be here. So what did you study in college and where did you go? Just curious. Yeah, I went to Harvard and I studied um, history of science. So I was really, oh, okay. I thought I wanted to be pre, well, I, I even thought I wanted to be pre-med. I was pre-med. Um, and, uh, but I didn't really want to study all science classes all the time. And they had this major that was history of science. And, and it was like this cool way to learn about the sort of social meaning of science and and how and how science and medicine have kind of become the way they are. And so in this weird twist, so my, my undergraduate thesis was on, um, screening tests for diphtheria at the turn of the century, <laughs> like infectious mm. disease epidemiology, a little timely now. Um, and then my PhD is in epidemiology. So um, I, I, I got really interested in epidemiology. Um, and so that's also kind of timely right now. Um, and then I went and became an ethicist, which is also kind of timely <laughs> right now. So the things I did were like completely boring to everyone until about six months ago. And now, <laughs> <laughs> now all of a sudden you're super popular. <laughs> so, um, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an odd intersection of things, but, um, but yeah, I, I wish, so I wish you, it wasn't popular right now. Don't get me wrong. Yes, exactly. I, I was just talking with somebody and we were talking about how this is changing, changing the, the nature of church and that we're kind of telling people that like, you're, you're net. This is your, this is a never going to have this time again. We hope like we really don't want this to happen again, but we're, oh. that's where we are. I mean, it, at church and, and, and social connection just, outside of yeah. churches and, and medicine, I think it's changing a lot of things. Um, yeah. 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 No, I, I, I totally agree. Right. So I, I, I certainly have some uh, pedantic kind of questions for you, but also <laughs> so we can talk a little deeper too, but um, tell me, uh, you know, I know that in the last few months, as we're in California and in the middle of the COVID-19, we're still somewhat sheltered in place, but are beginning to open up. But our whole thing was flattening the curve. Mm -hmm. And it, it feels like we did. It feels like we flattened the curve and that there was a lot of prep. Mm -hmm. So what's the status kind of as you're working in the medical field? How are hospitals doing? Um, what, what's kind of the, the nature of things going on right now? Well, I think it's really regional. So I'll just kind of preface what I'm saying by saying a lot of what I know and what I can say is based on my own experience and some of the experiences I know about locally from people I know locally. I know enough to know it's different in different places. I think we all saw that sure. particularly a month or two ago with New, with New York being um, affected right. so hard. Um, and, yeah, and for I mean, listeners, we're, we're, we're in Santa Clara County for those of you that are, yeah. are Wondering where Palo Alto County, and it's, what is today, May? The other thing I'm noticing is when you read posts and podcasts, you have to think about what day yes. it is. May 26. What day it is, exactly. Um, so, um, <laughs> May 26, um, not March 26, not July. Yep, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think um, where we are, at least, I think we have flattened the curve. I think the problem with flattening the curve is I think many of us kind of uh, I think it's human nature thought we'd flatten the curve and then we would be done. And the whole idea right. of flattening the curve is it actually smushes it down. And so it lengthens, lengthens the curve as well. It lengthens the duration of the curve as well as 
reducing the number of cases and hopefully the number of deaths and hospitalizations. So I think, um, and it's been a little variable even in our own area. Um, there was a study in San Francisco about how the mission and other neighborhoods were much more mm -hmm. severely affected. Um, so it's not even homogeneous within a city or within a region. Um, uh, I think some of the San Jose hospitals had more cases than the Santa Clara and some than the ones in Northern Santa Clara County and San Mateo County. So there's a lot of variability. Um, I think um, they've succeeded. The nice thing that the, the efforts have led to in the last um, couple of months is that uh, Stanford, at least, and Packard, I think they've, they, they've been very public about the fact that they've gotten really good protocols in place, and they feel now like they can really keep um, patients safe at the hospital and people who are mm. coming to the clinics and to the hospital very safe. Um, and they have, as far as I know, um, no cases to date of transmission from patients in the hospital to other patients wow. or to healthcare providers, which is a really good thing um, and should be really reassuring to people. I think they're more worried now about people not coming in because they are scared. Um, yeah. Not coming in when they don't feel well to the doctor, not coming into the emergency room and maybe waiting longer than they should and then it being harder for them mm. to get the care they need and get better. And so I think they're very worried about that now. They're worried about kids and babies not getting immunizations. And so I think they're trying to figure out ways to continue to convey the message that, you know, they, they have PPE and that it's safe and that they're trying to make make it as, as as welcoming as possible for people but that's not true everywhere around the country absolutely not right, right. It's, wanna... it's kind of a weird a weird dynamic right we're like we want you to be really concerned about this so stay home don't risk going out but yet now it's this weird middle space of but you if you need to go out please do come it's right. safe because i've heard of a lot of folks that are like which i'm just not going to the hospital I'm not no. going to do it I think hospital, I truly do believe that hospitals in our area at least are safe now. Um, yeah. And I think, um, it, but I get it. Like, I, I think I've gone, I don't want to pretend like I haven't felt some of the same things. I think it's a very normal human reaction. Um, but I think um, we're all going to have to change. It's interesting. I've been talking with a colleague about this and, um, you know, instead of thinking about risk as a light switch or, or we have to think about it more mm -hmm. as a series of dials and that we're going to be adjusting the dials in response to a variety of different situations and needs. Right. And I think your risk tolerance should be um, pretty high for something related to your health, you know, but your risk tolerance yep. for the, you know, poolside bar, maybe, maybe you should not, <laughs> that, so not you personally, but you know, so I mean, I oh, think no, I better cancel my party. But you know, I mean, I, and I think everything in between seeing your friends and neighbors yeah. and your family, um, you know, um, getting your plumbing repaired, you know, all, you know, life, life will go on before we have a solution to this, it won't be a switch. And we'll probably have to dial up and dial back. And, and that's sort of, I think, cognitively really hard for most of us. Um, and I think um, I, I forwarded you, I think there was this piece, a um, couple pieces in the New York Times magazine this weekend that really struck me and affected me. But um, some of them were about the kinds of transformations that happen. You were saying this before about church, but, you know, one of the transformations is the transformation of our notion of risk. I think we, we got yeah. kind of got used to risk being not for every, not for everybody in all situations, but from a public health standpoint, we got used to risk being kind of low. And we're kind of going to have to go back to the way it was 100 years ago, where we don't think about risk that way for a while. And so I think that's a transformation that's happening, too, at the same time as all the other ones. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right. And then you combine that with kind of this American culture of exceptionalism. And I'm the ex I'm, I'm the exception piece, which feels like 
I'm just going to say, it feels like in other parts of the country, I know we have it here, but in other parts of the country, it seems that it takes this wide swath where folks aren't dialing, changing their risk behavior. They're just going out as if it just switched back on and you could just go back out. Well, I've been saying Um, this since the beginning that I feel like there's, um, there's just this real um, cognitive bias that everybody has to some degree, which is to, like you said, to think of yourself as the exception, you know, it's like, well, but you know, you know, um, uh, I need to get my car fixed. So that's okay. So I'm yeah. going to do that. And, and, and the thing is, it's not all black or white and what's right for one person yeah. may not be right for somebody else. But I, I do feel very strongly that the, you know, in ethics, we talk a lot about balancing risks and benefits. And I think for a lot of healthcare stuff, the benefit risk ratio goes pretty far in the direction of going to the doctor or the dentist if you really need to. And so I think, um, I think the other really good thing for tough situations like that, both when you wonder whether you shouldn't be doing something or whether you wonder whether you should be doing it is to have a couple people you talk to that you bounce it off of. And so they can say, no, you're being paranoid. You really need to go to the doctor. It's important. Or they can say, um, no, you know, um, don't do that. Don't do that. That's nuts. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and make them people who aren't necessarily always people who agree with you. And, and kind of, I think more than ever, we need that. We all need that kind of gut check with other people. Like you did what you're going to do what, you know, or, oh yeah, you need to go do that. That's important, you know? And so I, I think that's kind of what I'm encouraging a lot of people in our friends and family circle yeah. to do is like, talk to people about what you're going to do. So, yeah. How does that work within your own family dynamics? So in my family, my, my mom is one of those that has never been a rule follower and is just at that age where she's not feeling her mortality. So she's going to follow rules strictly mm-hmm. and, and, and has nine grandchildren and just one born during this time, which yeah. she's not been able to hold. So and, but all the siblings were just like, nope, mom, you, you are not. You, you stay home. We don't want to see. I, it's been a really interesting thing for my, mostly my sisters have been really, cause they have the littlest kids. Yeah. And so they're just on my mom all the time. You can't come over. Or if you're yeah. going to come over, you're outside and we're inside. And I mean, so how, how are you just personally yeah. balancing all that? It's hard. And I feel for your family. Cause I think births and other things are those times when we really want to be with people. And, and I think for people, um, our parents, generation two, it's isolating. You know, I think I don't, your mom seems very well connected, but I think, you know, for many people, it's an isolating time in life and adding additional barriers can be really hard. So my older son is graduating from high school next week. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, and is it the worst thing that's happening? No, not even close, you know, Um, but, but I think he's, he's come to terms with it. I think Mm. he's also kind of ready for the next chapter. So maybe it's just as well, you know, on one, on the one yeah. hand, um, we also, we don't have much family around this area at all. So we don't have that problem. We are doing a lot of calling them on zoom anyway. So, mm-hmm. um, and actually in a positive way, we're actually talking to them more than we did before, which I think is, there's some good things about that. Um, my, my husband, Eric and I, you know, he is, um, I, I keep joking. He needs to like write an essay or maybe do his own podcast about what it's like to be married to an epidemiologist. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah. is it a exhausting or is it exciting or is it yeah. um but i mean i think you know in the beginning i i had this moment when it all started um when i was sitting in i mean i'd heard about it before i actually did some um debriefing sessions with nurses um at our hospital and part of the debriefing we did was tell me about when you first heard about covid and what was that like and it's sort of starting mm-hmm. the narrative arc of how you got into this crisis. And, and so I was kind of doing that for myself and I had heard about it before. Um, but then I was sitting in a meeting 
uh, and they warned us that we might have to teach classes remotely in the spring. And our first reaction, my first reaction was, oh, that's crazy. We're not going to do that. <laughs> and then I just like had this light bulb moment of like, oh my God. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what happened. It was literally like, you know, um, you know, literally a light bulb went off yeah. and I came home and I said to Eric, I'm like, oh my God, they're going to close down school. Well, this is what's going to happen. And, you know, we had a, we had a meet, volunteer meeting at my son's school and I'm like, we're going to do it by Zoom. And, you know, I mean, I, I sort of, I was maybe a week and a half to two weeks behind everybody else or ahead of every, ahead of a lot yep, of other yep. people. And I think many of my friends and family were like, yeah, nice Holly. And Holly's a little crazy. She's, you know, and, and I don't think right. it was because I was particularly like bright or, you know, it wasn't, it was just that somehow like something clicked mm -hmm. in my head. And so I think that's made it easier for my family to get used to that a little quicker because we started earlier, you know, and it, it felt a little less abrupt, I think. Um, my son still went to school for another week and a half after that because it, I realized it was probably the end of his senior year and I didn't want to take that right. away from him, you know. Um, but yeah, it's hard. I mean, I think we're getting antsy. Everybody's getting antsy. Um, and I think the other thing is the indeterminacy. We don't know how long it's going to be. And it's very, yeah. the bright parts of our brain that want to plan for the future just don't really fit. But I think we're kind of, I think every week is kind of a new normal. And we're sort of, um, yeah. I think the, the panic about it has sort of subsided a little bit. And, uh, you know, um, I, might, I think I'm also, because I have teenagers, they're in the, um, you understand this, they're in the um, natural stage of development of social distancing. Um, yep, so. exactly. It's like, it's, I watch my siblings with little kids, they have to entertain them all the time. I'm like, I'm lucky if I see one of them for more than a couple hours a day. I'm 100% in with you. My my siblings have younger <laughs> kids too, and they're like, oh my God, and so, you know. Um, but, um, but it's nice. I mean, I think it gives them some independence too. So I think it'll be weird when and if we do go back and everybody's wondering how that'll be um but yeah. but yeah so i think that's yeah we're just figuring it out every day like everybody else you know yeah i know that, that's i mean that's similar house too i mean i think folks have always, so how's it going i'm like well pretty much the same as it did what yesterday <laughs> right but yeah we have a we have a junior uh who has said multiple times that she'll say I, she was built for this like she's she's she has this great yep. room where we live she yep doesn't have a huge need. And, you know, remember uh, we, we came into this area, she's a transfer kid. So she's doesn't have this deep sense of social commitments to people. It's our other one who started college and had to come back after, you know, half of her first semester oh, so hard. Yeah. and then may or may not go back in the spring or, or in the fall. So I, there's I still, feel, I feel for them. It's really, uh, yeah. I mean, I, she's always like, yeah, I know they're worse things and I'm not a senior in college. So it's like, it's not as if that happened, but still like you, you had just left and you're like three or four months into this new exciting thing. And now you could be home again for seven months. Yeah. Well, and I've been doing, I think because I need it too. I've been doing a lot of reading about, you know, how can you frame things when there's uncertainty and, and it relates yeah. to some of the work I do, you know, when you're talking to people who have serious illnesses and and life ending or threatened life limiting illnesses which i know you do sometimes too and you know how do you frame hope and planning when you yeah. have a lot of uncertainty and i've been thinking a lot about that for for my kids and for their peers and your kids too you know and i think uh you know some of it is um this idea um, Chris Futner and Abby Rosenberg are colleagues of mine in, in palliative care. And they talk about this idea that we have um, like an architecture of hopes that sometimes in medicine, we do too much, you know, what are you hoping for? Mm -hmm. And then the patient or the family will say, well, I'm hoping for a cure. Well, I put, 
Yeah, exactly. You know, um, and it's like, well, I'm hoping for that too. Um, but what else are you hoping for? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that and that people can have multiple hopes. They can have seemingly contradictory hopes. That sometimes having some hopes that are not likely to happen in combination with some hopes that are likely to happen is actually kind of a coping mechanism that we all use. You know, so I hope that COVID goes away and we have a vaccine in a month. Okay. What else are you hoping for? <laughs> <Okay. laughs> you know, and, but you don't have to say that's crazy. That's not right. That's happen. it. Yeah. What are you, you thinking? Know, you can you can acknowledge where that comes from, and and uh, so try to think about that. And then the other thing um, that I've been thinking about is um, uh, Eric actually sent me another podcast from. Um, he, he's a big podcast guy. Um, in fact, I got him a T-shirt one year for Christmas. I get like joke things for Christmas for the family, and I I looked so hard for this, and I was so psyched when I found it. I got him a T-shirt that says, um, "I listen to podcasts, and therefore I am an expert." <laughs> so, <laughs> it is not far from the truth from my true, life. Right? Serious podcast friends. Yes. So, um, but anyway, he found a great, so he always knows all the good podcasts. And so he, um, or a lot of them. So he sent me one that he listens to Invisibilia. And there was one that was, um, it's a fairly long and complicated one, but but, um, one of the lessons in it was this idea that I know I've heard other places too, of think of what the next best thing to do is. So particularly when there's uncertainty or when things are, unsure and you you you're struggling with not being able to plan and in that podcast it was someone who had ALS who you know knew that she wasn't going to retain her physical function forever and that she had a degenerative disease you know what's the next right thing to do and if you can think about things that way that then um you know you can you can sort of have a concrete thing to focus on and not focus on but how am I going to deal with you know COVID in the world, you know, I mean, not that that's not important, but if you think about what's the next, next right thing to do. So I'm trying to think about that with both myself and the kids and like, you know, what's the next right thing for, and in the work I do too, what's the next right thing to do. And and then we'll worry about the thing, 20 things down, you know, when we get there. Well, and, and, and I found that, you know, this might be my personality type or just whatever, but not everything has to be amazing. Mm -mm. Like it, it can just be something and not everything has to be productive and not nope. this kind of, like I watch all my friends making bread and I'm like, I don't have to make bread. Nope. It's great. I love watching people do it. I don't need to, to do that. I'll try something out. I mean, but right. What is it? What are those things that kind of, I've, I found it really kind of cool. Like both kids are uh, involved in their particular passions and they're, they're, yeah. um, they're now phone banking during, that's oh. one of the things they're doing. Very one is cool. phone banking. One's phone banking for uh, Moms Demand Action, and one's phone banking to end mass incarceration. And oh, uh, that's awesome! I love so, that. It's so funny to watch them kind of go through this process because uh, one who's doing it with Moms Demand Action took when they signed up, they took the cold call list. Oh yeah, the easy, the hard. And we're stuff. like, we're like, why'd you do that? <laughs> She's like, I don't know, I don't because the other the other one took the list that says people who said yes, contact me. I'm like. Yeah, which is for that. Yeah, yeah. Now that's so funny. So you need to tell um, tell them that um, that is. So I had a job in college where I was working for a research group for um, a big, large study called the Women's Health Study, which was a, a uh-huh. study by mail of, of of nurses and doctors. And anyway, it was hundreds of thousands of people, and um, they had to fill out a pre questionnaire, and then they frequently filled it out wrong. Um, and, or filled it in completely. And right. so uh, my job was to cold call people oh my gosh. and ask them about their questions. But they were often things like, um, you know, uh, you know, 
Um, I, I see that you said that you're still nursing your child at age 65. Is that correct? You know, it was things like that, you know, <laughs> it was not always the most comfortable of questions to be cold calling. So good for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then also, you, you know, in, in this day and age, we think about it differently, but they, they were only given the options on the form of filling out male or female, which they would not do right. now. Um, but back right. then, that was what they did. And people would fill it out. Um, they would just fill in the, it was not a matter of gender identity. People would just fill in it wrong sometimes, yeah. but you wanted to be respectful. So you had to figure out a way to be like, um, I'm asking you about question number two. And, you know, um, and, and, and they're like, oh, why? Look around you, that car you're driving, that house your family lives in, making your daughter laugh, inspiring her to dream. You did that. Teaching your son to drive, teaching him he can be anything, all you and your dreams for tomorrow. You'll do that too. Legacies don't just happen, they are made by you. The important word being you. American Family Insurance, protecting your dreams as you achieve them. Insure carefully, dream fearlessly. Products not available in every state. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, SI and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Are you asking me that? I'm like, well, you know, I just want to know what your answer is and make sure we record it accurately. And so anyway, but as a result of that job, I can call anybody about anything. <laughs> I have no fear. I'm sure. I did that for, you know, a whole summer and I can call anybody about anything. And, right. and, and lots of people can't do that. Lots of people are scared of the phone or talking to oh, strangers. Yeah. Your, your, fan, your, your kids are going to be like pros. They're going to be able to call anybody about anything. Cold call anybody. And I, I, I was like, because I'm like, has anybody been mean yet? And like, yeah, a couple of people are mean. And I'm like, she's like, man, whatever. I'm like, okay, good. All right, here you go. Keep yeah. going. I mean, that's the other thing is you probably have this in your work, your whole career, you know, yeah. you learning to have people be mean to you and not take it personally is a serious life skill too. So, you know. Yeah. And sometimes it comes it. out of, it comes out of, you know, uh, working through things like worship and all those kinds of things at the church. You know, I, especially now um, I've talked with some other folks on podcasts about what, now that we're virtual and yeah. folks are now at the place where they're so comfortable with it, they're able to complain. Yeah. And, I, and I actually think that's not a bad thing. I think that's actually, I'm trying to frame with staff that, part of getting into some groove is that folks are feeling like this is theirs. Yeah. And, and they feel like it's theirs. Yeah. And I can... love it. I will say, I really am enjoying the virtual worship, which isn't to say that. Yeah. You know, isn't to say there are things that I miss because I think everybody sure. does. Um, but um, I just think, you know, it, it, it's one of the things going back to the disability thing I talked about earlier, it's so accessible to people, you know, and, yeah. and, I, know, and I know it's not accessible to everybody, but I think it has the potential yeah. to be accessible to a lot of people and it won't be forever, but I think it's pretty cool. No. And I love the way and, you and do no, it. So. And no, no format is accessible. I've been trying to help folks where no format is accessible to everyone. Our, our face-to-face that leaves a lot of folks, right? I mean, tons of people. So, well, and just being able to see people's faces, like I was saying that to yeah. Eric uh, one previous Sunday, that like when you're all facing the same direction, yeah, you're exactly. back to people's heads, you know, which is yeah. fine. Like you recognize yeah. their heads and maybe you see the people in the row next to you, you know, but it's kind of cool yeah. to see more people's faces too. I mean, you know, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. a, it's well, a, think... you're doing, I think it, it's a type of creativity. We're, uh, I'm teaching a few courses in the next six months around hybrid church. Um, now that our church oh, has decided cool. not to, you know, not to do in-person worship, at least until 2021. Um, what does, what does hybrid look like? Cause the inertia to go back to location is going to be so strong, mm -hmm. but how do we actually say it's no, it's actually, we're all in this, now this expanded space. Some mm -hmm. of us will happen to be physically here and others 
will still right. be and how do we not kind of tier that as better or worse but actually have it be communal i, I think that's a going to be such an exciting kind of next stage for churches that yeah. can do it and not all churches are going to be able to but no, i think we're, we're poised I, I like to do that I'm really interested to hear what how you approach that because I think education is going to be that way too, and we don't yeah. know how to do it. We're going to have to figure it out, you know. And and I yeah. think we're going to yeah. learn from people who figured it out in other venues. And yeah, I don't. I think we're going to yeah. be hybrid a lot of things for a while. So it's, it, is, uh, it is. Yeah, it's an but, it's an odd time. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back and ask you a few more questions. So let's take great. a quick break. I have the privilege and honor of serving on the board of More Light Presbyterians. MLP is an organization with the mission to work for the full participation of LGBTQIA plus people in the life, ministry, and witness of the Presbyterian Church USA and in society. One aspect of our work is to honor people's gender identity and preferred pronouns and to encourage and help others to do the same. We do this in a variety of ways, but one of our most successful has been creating swag such as pins, stickers, and t-shirts that are visible symbols and sayings that honor the beauty of our gender identities. If you'd like to get your MLP swag, they are offering a special discount for listeners of BRC and Friends, so just go over to mlp.org backslash shop and use the code BRC at checkout to get 15% off your entire purchase of anything in the store except for patches and stoles. Again, get your more light Presbyterian swag at mlp.org backslash shop and use the code BRC for 15% off. And we're back. <laughs> Good to, uh, but still continuing on talking with Holly uh, about ethics and COVID and all kinds of good stuff. But um, so this is like, I asked you before, like a totally broad question mm -hmm. because, you know, I, I live in the world and the bubble in which I live in the, the kind of the sphere of influence and activity. But, you know, are, are there ethical questions that you're seeing people asking of themselves or being faced with that maybe some of us maybe haven't thought about? I mean, what are some of the things that you, you find are really, folks are really kind of struggling with or, or wrestling with these days? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think there's a. I, I again, I won't get them all, but I think um, yep. some of them are um, really important. One, even not in COVID times, but it comes up even more um, starkly in COVID times, which is if you can't make healthcare decisions for yourself, who do you want to make healthcare decisions for you? Who would be the person who you'd like to be your surrogate decision maker and writing that down or telling your doctor um, so that people can know that because um, it's important. And I think it gives people a lot of peace of mind to know that someone's making decisions for them that they trust. Ideally you have conversations with that person about what you do and don't want in various situations, <laughs> yes. but that doesn't always happen. But at least that person knows you, knows what's important to you, knows something about your values, in your life. And so I, 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 one of the things I teach and when I talk about this to even outside people is one of the most important things you can do is designate who you want to be your surrogate decision maker, ideally an advanced directive document, but you can just write it down too. Um, and mm. especially in the state of California, um, it varies a little bit state by state. Um, so, um, so that's one thing that I think is really important that becomes the visitation stuff has been really hard, although it's changing now in a good way. When it's when COVID started um, uh, in California, as well as in other places, they really limited, um, no one could come in as a visitor in the adult hospital right. unless someone was dying. Um, and dying really imminently. And that there have been all sorts of really painful, tragic stories about that throughout the country. And I think that also, there was actually a story in the New York Times, I think that made people really reluctant to come into the hospital because they didn't want to come in without right. someone there. Um, 
at our hospitals, there was always an exception for kids. They would allow one parent to come mm. or, or a guardian to come in with kids. Um, the state of California, about two weeks ago, I think, issued some new guidance that allows them to be a little bit more flexible about visitors um, in both the pediatric and adult hospitals, especially now we're trying to be flexible with um, patients who need ongoing care, either because of physical or mm. cognitive mental disabilities. So, so there's a little bit more flexibility. But like I said about the dials, we're going to have to, you right, know, right. Gonna have to adjust that. We may have times where we have to get more restrictive again. We may eventually have to have tests um, of visitors once we have enough tests. And so mm. I think people worry about what it's like to both be a patient in the hospital when you can't have a visitor, what it's like to be the family or friends of someone when you can't visit someone, whether they have COVID or not, and what it's like to be the healthcare provider when you feel like you really want to provide not just the literal technical care for a person, but you know you want to be caring and supportive to someone who doesn't have their family or, or their friends with them. And so I think healthcare providers are really feeling a lot of ethical burden about they want to do the right thing and they want to be there for people. And so I think it's a lot of stress for, for healthcare providers too in that situation. Um, and I think that goes back to the other broad thing, which is I think healthcare providers are under tremendous stress right now um, uh, of all kinds, even if they're not people taking care of COVID patients. I think, um, you know, people are going through economic, financial hardship and uncertainty. Um, people, um, you know, have family and friends who are sick. They have family and friends who are working in places that are more seriously, intensely affected. And I just think them, um, and I think they feel, um, one one of the nurses I worked with said that, you know, they watch each other. The, this was um, someone who took care of COVID patients. They watch each other take PPE on and off as a sort of check, you know, like I'm making sure right. you're following right. the you're protocol. Touching, right. yeah. And it yeah. just feels like a tremendous responsibility. They want to, you know, they have, they have each other's life in their hands. And so I think it's, it's a different, and the things we all do to, this is true for all of us, the things we do to decompress and to relax and to take our minds off of things aren't always available anymore. And so I think it's just like, it's a stressful time for everybody. I worry about, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about and worrying about our healthcare providers. And then I think we're all still planning for, you know, a lot of hospitals are trying to figure out how to plan for the crisis getting worse. Um, they're mm. trying to plan for, you know, they're still worried about being ready if we ran out of ventilators, even though we seem to have flattened the curve. I think they're worrying about, um, because they had to cancel a lot of elective procedures, unfortunately, our current healthcare systems financing is really based around a certain volume of elective procedures. And so, the hospitals and healthcare systems themselves are, are laying people off and having right. um, people take PTO and other kinds of things. And so I think that's an ethical challenge as well. And, um, and then how do we provide good care for people who have all the things that have nothing to do with COVID, you know, all the things that, you know, heart disease, um, you know, uh, um, asthma, um, you know, um, all the all the ordinary things, ordinary things right. we, we all have, and how do we support people in those situations. So, um, and, and then I think the last, it's not the last one by far, but the other one that, that is a really big ethical issue is the huge health disparities that have been laid even more bare by the crisis and the fact that yeah. the illness and the deaths are absolutely disproportionately affecting um, communities of color and socially, you know, financially um, disadvantaged communities and really revealing 
the, the severe inequities in our society and the ways in which we, we don't have safety nets for people and we don't, we don't provide basic health care to people. Um, and um, I think and that, that not only hurts those people, but it hurts everybody. And um, I think there are a lot of people who are saying, yeah, we told you so, um, you know, yep. but that's not very satisfying at this point. No, it is you know? the, the least <laughs> satisfying I told you so that yeah. you could ever have at this point. Yeah. And, and then the one last, I forgot one other group I'm worried about. I, I'm mm-hmm. many worries. Um, I think, um, you know, I, I, I worry a lot um, because I think a lot about patients with disabilities. I think a lot about um, adults with disabilities and, and children and families of children with disabilities who really depend on the school system and depend mm. on the healthcare system for a lot of their daily lives and their social interactions. Um, my husband's really involved in Special Olympics and you know there are a lot of adults with disabilities for whom Special Olympics is their community and they can't yeah. get together with any of those people and there's a lot of social isolation and we don't know when that's gonna end and they're trying to build virtual communities like, like you were talking about, but um, I just worry, I worry about a lot of those people. So those are some of the ethical issues, but right. they're really still all about the same principles. It's just how do we do it in the new, the new reality. So how, do, how do you help an institution like Stanford and the hospital make some of those decisions? I mean, I can't, I can't imagine. I mean, we, we, on the outside, we see the decision, right? We see, okay, you can't, or you can't visit, or there's exception. Yeah. But what, how does that even actually work where you're helping this large yeah. behemoth of a organization? Um, I mean, part of it, like everything else in life is relationship. I think, you know, a lot of it is trying to um, build relationships with people who make those decisions and then be a part of conversations and ask good questions. I mean, I think partly because I'm not an MD, I'm a PhD. I like to joke that I'm a fake doctor, um, but you know, I, I, <laughs> but, yeah, I'm, I'm faker than you because I have an honorary. Oh, that's even more prestigious, though. That's prestigious. No, so you don't know. If I started, if I started putting doctor on my, my friends would be very quick to remind me. Yeah, but no, I, but I mean, I trust me. I, I had some blood, sweat, and tears for my doctor, but it just—I know you do. Want, it's totally. You wouldn't, yes. me, you wouldn't want me taking care of anybody. But um, you know, I get to ask questions, and this goes in pre-COVID times too. Is like, but why? You know, but but why? You know, <laughs> I don't understand. And I think, um, you know, sometimes if you're actually a physician, you worry you might look stupid if you ask that question. And I just don't really worry about looking stupid. And I also feel like it's more of an innocent, like you know, I really don't understand. Um, and and so, and I think I will say that at Stanford in particular, um, people are very open to those conversations and, mm-hmm. and they've been um, uh, both leadership and just people who are on the front lines really welcome people with an ethics background to the rooms and the tables where those conversations are happening. And so, you know, does that, you know, does that mean we solve everything just by waving a magic wand? No, of course not. You know, but I think, and I think we learn as we go, like everybody else does, but I think, you know, it's, it's, it's thinking creatively. The other thing that happens in, in your work too is like, well, you know, how can we think outside the box here? You know, maybe we can't do it that way, but can we think about how to do it this way? You know, what are some other ways we can try to achieve the same goals? And so, so it's a lot of meetings. Sometimes it's writing up policies. Sometimes it's being, um, we have a consult service that's available 24 seven. So people call us and they say, okay, well, I know the policy is this, but this situation seems a little bit different. Can you help me think through how to apply this. And so some of it is, is being willing to talk through that with people and, and not pretend that we have all the answers because sure. I mean, sometimes people think ethics is the police and we're really not the police. <laughs> and, and trust me, it would look very different if we were the police. And, but, you know, I think we're, yeah. we're, we're, we're advisory and, and we can be a partner with people and including with patients and families in, in figuring things out. And so, 
you know, we just try to work together with people and, mm -hmm. and, um, and keep open lines of communication. So that's kind of sounds fuzzy, but that's really basically what it yeah. is. No, I would think of, I don't think of ethics as a police. I see ethics ask, ethicists as asking us the right questions, right? You're asking the questions to help us right. get to a, a good place or to make them better, as if there was ever, ever any one right answer. Well, we all have values and we, we all can have find, yep. We all have perspectives. When I teach the medical students, I often try to say like, before you figure out every, every clinical encounter is an ethical encounter, whether you think it is or not. Um, and, and, you know, you better figure out what your gut feeling is before you start figuring out what you think the right thing to do is, because right. if you can't separate what your own gut feeling or your own values are from the situation or your patient's values or something else, you're going to have a hard time thinking about how to handle it in an ethical way. And so part of it is like, this patient reminds me of my grandfather and mm. I think that we did the wrong thing there. So I think we should do this. It's like, okay, well make sure you, what you, you name that and, <laughs> it, and then you put it over there and then you, and then you, um, right. then you engage with the patient in front of you about what's going on. So, so basically, I mean, that's like clinical pastoral education for many of us, right? You can walk into a room, then you leave and you have to spill your guts about how did every part of it impact you and what did it bring up and, Absolutely. It's very similar. Yeah, yeah. No, I've talked to a lot of um, people who work in, in chaplaincy in a hospital too. So there's a lot of that sort of like, yeah, right. it's, it's what's it. You're a human being or else you couldn't do the work. And so it's, right, exactly. you, you know, no matter what. So, um, yeah. but it feel, but it also feels like a place where making connection can make a difference sometimes. Oh, so yeah. I yeah. like that part of it. So yeah. yeah. Humans and humans. I think that's always better. I'm all for humans. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. This is great. Uh, thank you so much. So as I do with all my guests, I ask a couple of questions at the end. Uh, and uh, you, you had a little bit of time to think about it, but don't worry about this. No, not a whole no lot pressure. Question. So what are, you what are you listening to? What are you reading? And what are you watching? So what are you listening to? And people do music, podcasts, whatever. Yeah. Um, well, I just listened to that Invisibilia podcast. And um, I think I forwarded you the name of it. But it was about this huh. um, woman who um, developed a sense of smell where she could smell what diseases people had before they had it oh my goodness <laughs> yeah it was quite fascinating so um it, maybe you have the okay. link and you can share it um, yeah we'll put the we'll put the links in the in the in the show notes at yeah, the bottom. i do love um one of the podcasts i really love is um that's kind of light but also good and led me to a lot of other really good books is um the history chicks um they do uh -huh. sort of uh, hour-long profiles of women in history and i enjoy that um so i listen to that um what am i reading um i am reading um uh, I'm not sure this is a good example of what I normally read, but I'll be honest with you. Yeah, um, so I'm reading, um, I do recommend that New York times magazine from last Sunday. Any, uh, there are like six great essays in there um, oh, okay. about quarantine and thinking about quarantine. Um, one of them was about um, uh, watching nature outside your window and how that helps you um, manage uncertainty and that used a comparison to prisoners of war, World War II. So that was interesting. Um, I'm also reading um, the last of the last of your springs, which a book of essays by Donald Kennedy, who is the former president of Stanford, who unfortunately just died of COVID about a mm -hmm. month ago. Right. Um, and I read that because it was recommended by my friend Julie Lifcott Hames, um, who's written several books too. Um, and there's some good stuff in there, um, uh, but it's not that representative of what I usually read. So, um, right. and then what I'm watching, um, I highly recommend um, Crip Camp on Netflix. If you haven't watched Crip Camp, I really really love that documentary that it's it's out. it's making it's on my it shows up on my twitter feed all the time because i have a lot of folks that are involved in disability movement and uh folks kind of keeping me honest about 
ableism stuff and all that. So I've seen, yeah. suddenly been watching it mentioned, but it's, it's worth it. And, um, and the book by Judy Human, who's profiled in that, her autobiography is on my list of things to read. Um, I also um, have been watching Picard because I'm a Star Trek. Oh yeah. So I've heard, I've heard mixed reviews on Picard. Where, where are you? I think I like it more than don't like it. It's it's okay. darker. It's darker than the yeah. first one, and um, so I actually am trying to be careful about when I watch it because I like don't want to watch it right before <laughs> I go to sleep. Um, I love um, Patrick Stewart, so I'll basically watch right. it. Then. Um, and it's got nice. Uh, we're watching it while watching someone in. Uh, I think it was in Vulture wrote a guide of which episodes of Next Generation you should rewatch because they come up oh. in hard. So we're kind of like, we watch a couple of Next Generation episodes and then we watch Picard oh, and that's actually been kind of fun. So we're going slowly, but it's, um, I watch Next Generation. So are you, are, are you all the ones that then would be able to point out uh, discrepancies? I'm not quite that good, but um, okay. yeah, but, but I am like, oh, I know that one. That, that's familiar. Right. I know that one. So um, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not quite that good, but um, my, my sister probably could. My sister's very, my sister had like, it wasn't a Star Trek themed wedding, but there was some Star Trek. <laughs> she's, she's very serious. So that's been a fun, a fun watch. Um, okay. And yeah, I've also been, the other thing I've been doing is because my oldest son is graduating. I've been spending a lot of time watching old videos and looking at photos from his childhood. <laughs> so that's kind of been fun. It's not something we usually do and it's been a, a treat to do. So it's a little bit like, this is your life, you know? <laughs> But, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, my 15 year old was enjoying looking at them. And I said, Oh, you know, what do you like about looking at them? He's like, I don't know. And then he said, but mom, you were younger then. <laughs> I'm like, yes, <laughs> Great. I was. Yep, Thank I you was. for telling me. <laughs> so, out of the mouths of, out of the mouths of babies. Exactly. Exactly. Not something I didn't know, but okay. Thanks, thanks, for, thanks for telling me. So, uh, but yeah, that's pretty much, but I welcome suggestions and I love things that you've asked other people and written down several ideas. Oh, our, ours are, ours are just trash. Most of my stuff were just like, I, I, I'm one of those that there's enough, like I, I embed myself with enough trauma and oh, yeah. struggle that sometimes it was like, I just want to watch brain candy. They just let me brain candy is uh, good. sit down. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I, and I, they're not we guilty watched, pleasures. They are just pleasures. Yeah. We watched, um, it wasn't, I don't know if it's brain candy. That may be give, being too much of a compliment, but we watched um, The Naked Gun last night, which does not really hold up. Oh my God. Um, I was going to say, does it hold up? It doesn't? No, no. it doesn't. I know. Some of those, we made the mistake of watching 16 Candles. Oh yeah, that doesn't and, hold up either. Oh my, I mean, I knew some of the parts, I, the races stuff. Racist, rape. But then- like and now, right now, it's all the day rape that Abe was. Like I was like, oh my, how did I like that movie at the time? <laughs> oh yeah, I, I still remember our uh, our middle child. We're sitting there watching because we're like, oh, it's on Netflix, and both Robin are like, Sixteen Candles, we should watch it. And uh, it, yeah, Abby looks at us in the middle and says, "You all actually like this?" <laughs> I mean, there was like disappointment in her, like the <laughs> my social justice parents. Yeah. And well, then we go into that and then she's like, that's what everybody says. Like that's. <laughs> no, she's right. She's not wrong. It's totally true. I know exactly. I'm like, I, I know. Yeah. Now, now Colin did appreciate one thing about um, Naked Gun is he, in the beginning, he's getting off the plane and he falsely thinks the crowd and the press are for him, but they're there for Weird oh, Al Yankovic. And, and, and we have decided <laughs> that one of the things that has remained solid and held up is Weird Al. So um, <laughs> that is true. 
Everything else in the movie, that is... not so much, including O.J. Simpson and, you know. The oh, my God, that's but, right. But, oh. uh, but Weird Al, Weird Al's still holding strong. <laughs> so, and he's still going. Like, he's. No, he yeah, must have been, no. like, 30 then. I don't know, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> was, you know? Well, and he's, he, I listened to an interview. Maybe it was on Fresh Air or something. And he was, he's so cutting edge. Like, oh, yeah. He was no, like, he I'm is. not doing albums anymore because nobody buys albums. And this was years ago. No, he's like I'm just really yeah. I'm like you are obviously a very smart man who made it. No, no, he and he's he's yeah, no, he so he he held up, but pretty much nothing else. Yeah, nothing else. (laughs) (laughs) I guess the Queen. Remember, there's a there's a Queen Elizabeth. She's still alive. Yeah, that part maybe held up, but the rest not so much. (laughs) That's that's actually pretty. Mike, yeah, my kids would not. They do not appreciate my humor because. They would look at him like, we're not watching that. I'm like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. No. You need all right. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you for you. being so on. Thanks for all you do. And uh, yeah. it's not yeah. here. Thanks. You're very and, welcome. Uh, very welcome. And, and, take and, care. and everybody, um, thank you all for listening again. Uh, as you know, uh, subscribe, like, all that kind of stuff, review, pod, wherever you listen to your podcasts on iTunes and Google and Spotify and all those places. And we'll um, see you next time back here at BRC and Friends. BRC and Friends was produced, written, recorded, and edited by Bruce Reyes Chow with zero help from his dog Vespa. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to BRC and Friends wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please follow, like, tag, and share on all the platforms via B-R-C-A-N-D-F-R-I-E-N-D-S. Thanks for listening to BRC and Friends. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's, uh, actually Geico. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money? Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. When you have a problem, Box 12 gets you answers. The violence continues. When crime hits too close to home, we want to make sure your voice is heard. We're listening and ready to confront your problems head on. How can Box 12 help you? Tell us at kptv.com.